The reading can be found on page 927 in the Church Bibles. It's taken from the first chapter of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea became calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is a fabulously well-known story, isn't it? If you were to come to 37 Hamilton Road and look at my children's Bible, it would fall open at this, uh, this story. The pages have been stuck back in with sellotape and they're dog-eared and basically trashed. My four-year-old just loves this story. Daniel comes second and then the resurrection third. And well, theologically not quite right, but um, she'll get there hopefully one day. It's an amazing story, if perhaps a very unusual story. And I'm personally really looking forward to the next four Sundays as we look through this book chapter by chapter. Um, Jonah is um, only mentioned elsewhere in the Bible once. That's in 2 Kings chapter 14. And we don't really know anything else about Jonah except his name. 
the name of his father and his birthplace. But Jonah is the story of God's will and one man's rebellion against it. And as such, I think it is a wonderful parable for us all, all of us who no doubt have rebelled at times in our lives against specific callings that we have sensed or others have sensed that God has placed on our lives. When we talk about submission these days, it's not really um, a word that you would find in vogue amongst leaders. Leadership's all about power. You don't often hear of leaders saying, I'm, I'm going to submit. That is, unless they've just been voted out of office. But even you know, people like Mugabe just won't submit. And neither did Jonah. In chapter 1, we're faced almost immediately with his rebellion. Verse 1 starts in a manner very similar to lots of other um, Old Testament prophets. The word comes to the prophet. Go to the great city Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you look at what other uh, Old Testament prophets did, they, uh, they generally went off and were the messenger boys. They did exactly as they were told. They complied with God's message. They didn't generally get thanked for it. Often they were persecuted and killed, but they did deliver. And what's interesting from this passage is the text doesn't make any mention of Jonah having to think about whether he should deliver this message. You know, it would be understandable if the text had said, Jonah was greatly afraid and withdrew to the hills to a cave and there fasted and prayed for three days. It doesn't say anything like that at all. It just says he ran. Very odd silence and running. Look at Moses, Jeremiah perhaps. At least they argued with God. But Jonah doesn't even do that. He just runs. So what was it about the message that precipitated his flight? Well, we need to look at the message to understand, uh, to understand and, and, and look at who it was to be delivered to and uh, what the message actually said. Well, first of all, Nineveh was the greatest city of the Assyrian Empire at that time. It was a world power, rising world power. Um, it was about 500 miles northeast of Judah, um, very nearby current-day Mosul in Iraq on the Tigris River. It was a powerful and wicked city, and Jonah would have grown up hating the Assyrians and fearing their atrocities. One commentator uh, described them as being the sort of Nazi SS stormtroopers of their day. Jonah doesn't say much about their wickedness, but we do know what they were up to because the prophet Nahum, and that is, uh, that is a book in the Bible, it's two after Jonah, although I'm sure you all knew that. I have to confess I, I had trouble locating it in, the, in my Bible. But um, Nahum says that Nineveh was guilty of evil plots against God, exploitation of the helpless, cruelty in war, and just to cap it all off, idolatry, prostitution, and witchcraft. So I think we have a pretty good idea what the Ninevites were like and what they represented to Jonah. And of course, because of their evil deeds, Jonah's message was all the more important because without repentance, they would face God's wrath and judgment. 
All those lies in Nineveh, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, but I imagine at least 100,000, their lives depended on Jonah delivering his message, which makes it all the more shocking that he didn't want to obey God and go there. So I wonder, was he having a midlife crisis? Was he suffering from depression? Well, I think there are two reasons that caused his rebellion. The first is obvious from what I've already said. I think he was just scared. And who wouldn't have been absolutely terrified from going to the headquarters of the, you know, the, the, the enemy in the area? But the other thing, we have to look at the message itself. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So what does it mean to preach against Nineveh? Well, I think God was telling Jude, uh, Jonah, he was saying, Jonah, go and warn them of my impending judgment. I know about all the horrific things they are doing, and if they don't stop and turn from their evil and wicked ways, I'm going to judge them. Subtext, destroy them. So what can we conclude from this? Well, I think there's only one conclusion, and that is that Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be forgiven. He wanted them judged. And so he refused to go. He turned from his mission and ran. And I think he probably knew how, how dangerous this was to run from, from a God. And we know he was a believer because it says elsewhere in this text that he believed in God. And so he runs Nineveh was northeast, so he heads almost entirely in the opposite direction, off to the west. He go, tries to go to Tarshish. Tarshish was in Spain at the other end of the Mediterranean and at the extent of the then known world. It doesn't actually matter where it is. It just represents somewhere as far as possible from where God wanted him to be. And he travels there by boat. The Hebrews hated the sea. The sea throughout Scripture um, it's really a metaphor for, for chaos. It's where the Leviathan lives. The monsters come out of the sea. So it was quite a big step for him to do that. I can imagine him arriving in Joppa, going down to the harbour master and asking where the next boat was tied up that was due to set sail as soon as possible for the furthest destination. Would have been quite an unusual request, wouldn't it? The harbour master would perhaps have looked at him and seen a frightened man on the run. And above the smell of the fishing nets on the harbour side, perhaps even sensed the smell of fear on him. Then once at the recommended ship, there would have been surprise at his request, raised eyebrows and knowing looks amongst the crew. Someone who'd committed some crime was running from the authorities, perhaps. But in verse 10, we read that Jonah tells them the truth. I wonder what the sailors would have thought of him. They would have expected him to have been a fugitive, perhaps someone who'd uh, been discovered, killed a brother, or had stolen temple gold. But when they discover that he's running from his God, I wonder what they thought of him. They probably thought he was mad, running from his God. They never lived in fear of their gods in the same way because they were false gods made of wood and clay. So Jonah's fear, I think, perhaps would have been hard for them to understand. But whatever, he paid the price for his ticket, his one-way ticket, and they were happy to take this frightened man on board. Happy, that is, 
until the storm struck. And it can't have been long before it struck because they say that they were close enough to land to want to row back to it. Verse 4 tells us that the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The severity of the storm was such that in verse 5 we're told that all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. The crew does what even atheists are known to do in times of severe crisis. They pray for deliverance. And then the verse goes on to say they threw the cargo into the sea to help lighten the ship. The act of final desperation, but not the most desperate act, which we'll come on to. And where is Jonah at this moment of high drama? The moment of life and death and earnest if misguided prayers by his shipmates. Verse 5 tells us that he's fallen into a deep sleep. The captain's question, how can you sleep, is a good one. How could he have slept? Anyone who's been in a storm in a small boat knows it's a very, very frightening experience. And here we have the first of many parallels with Jesus in this book. Do you remember that it was Jesus who slept soundly whilst his disciples feared for their lives in a storm described in Mark chapter 4 with the disciples asking him, don't you care if we drown? And so the captain gets him up and Jonah joins them on the gale-lashed deck. You can imagine the small boat being tossed around, the waves hitting the side of the boat and, and breaking over them all. The superstitious crew sense that one of them is responsible for this because the storms come out of nowhere. There wouldn't have been any uh, meteorological indication of the storm, otherwise they wouldn't have set sail. They're very close to land. You know, something really weird is going on here, which of course plays on the superstitious side. And so they, uh, they turn to lots. And Jonah remains silent until the lot falls to him. Their superstitious efforts pay off, but only because, of course, God's sovereign hand is upon everything that is going on. And they question him. Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answers, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a full creedal confession, isn't it? It's not just, yeah, I, I, I just come from somewhere near Joppa and yeah, I, I, I believe in the Hebrew God. It's a full-on evangelistic statement. And what's fascinating is the result of that is electrifying. They're terrified. And having written him off as either a madman or some criminal, they ask him, what on earth have you done to anger your God so much? But the sea is getting rougher, and too impatient for his answer, they ask him the million-dollar question. What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And he tells them to chuck him overboard, prophesying that the sea would then immediately calm down. But, of course, throwing a fellow mariner overboard is something that they just would never contemplate doing. And so, out of their love for, for their fellow humanity, they valiantly try and row back to shore instead of, instead of drowning Jonah. But as we see throughout this story, God is sovereign. And you can just imagine him 
seeing them return from casting their lots, they all man the oars and they're all going like this, heave! And he just sort of turns up the wind dial, just a bit more wind, and they just start going backwards, defeating the most valiant efforts of these seasoned oarsmen. And so they know what their only course of action is. Jonah has to be thrown overboard. And so they cry out to God to forgive them as Jonah goes over the side to certain death. And in another Christ-like action, Jonah's life is given for the lives of all the crew. The sea calms as predicted, and I imagine that they suddenly know that they have been part of the most incredible, supernatural event that defies any rational explanation. And they do what I think most of us would do when confronted by something we cannot explain, cannot understand, and could not even believe in unless we'd actually witnessed it ourselves. They greatly feared the Lord. In other words, they prayed to God and vowed to serve him. But unbeknownst to them, far beneath the now calm sea, something even more amazing is taking place. God has sent a big fish to swallow Jonah, thus preserving his life. God's hand continues to guide the developing situation. Well, we don't know what happens to the crew. I imagine um, they got back somewhat ashen-faced to Joppa. They've lost all their cargo, and they've lost uh, their fair-paying passenger, but yet they're all intact. They've lost probably all their sails, and I wonder what the ship owner would have had to say to them. He'd probably sack them. And on top of it, the ship owner probably thought they'd all be mad because they'd be saying, we've seen God act. God is real. But anyway, that's um, another story. We don't know. But we do know what happened to Jonah, and you'll hear all about that next Sunday. But the key thing now, I suppose, is for us to ask ourselves, what can we learn from this today? What lessons does it have for us? I think the first obvious point is that God is clearly sovereign. He's in control of our lives. The creator God is in the detail of our lives and can and will intervene in even the smallest of ways. Do you know, he could have stopped Jonah leaving his town. He could have stopped him on the road. He could have, he could have put a hole in the hull of the boat before it had even set sail. He could have allowed them to make it back to shore by rowing against the wind. But no, God had a sovereign plan. God knew that Jonah needed three days inside this foul-smelling belly of some vast leviathan to bring him to his senses, to a place of repentance. And I think many of us will have had a calling from God which we have perhaps ignored, refused or perhaps chosen not to believe it. I certainly sensed a bit of that when um, people started telling me that I should think about ordained ministry. I thought they were completely barking mad. But I think if we're reflective, we could all find Ninevehs in our own lives. I was looking at some young people at the previous uh, service and I was thinking about cricket because we played the Summerfield staff. I won't tell you who won but it wasn't us. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what it must be like to be a young, just, you know, a young man, for example, um, at school, and a Christian, and thinking about sharing his faith with somebody 
in the cricket pavilion, perhaps. I mean, that's something I would run from. And so I, we have to ask ourselves, are there any Ninevehs in our lives? And, of course, there's another lesson, which is that we can run, but we can't hide. We must submit to God's calling on our lives. And we must submit not just our heads, but our hearts, our wills, and our wallets. Everything we have, we must submit to his sovereign purpose, trusting in him and cooperating with him. And I feel that if we don't do that, we shouldn't be surprised if life starts to get harder for us. And the second point is to do with what we actually believe. If we really believe that God is sovereign, that he has the best for us um, on his heart, and he really cares for us, then I think that our lives can be transformed. But if we don't believe that, then I think that leads to disobedience. If we don't really believe that God is sovereign, that he is all-powerful, then our humanity just leads us to think, well, yeah, I think God needs a bit of help in this. Or even worse, I don't need God's help in this. I can do it in my own strength. That's quite a danger. And so perhaps God is challenging us over something now in our lives. It could be an area of disobedience, perhaps a calling to do something we don't want to do. Perhaps it's a calling to make up with somebody that we haven't forgiven. Whatever it is, I challenge you and myself, to, we need to ask ourselves, why are we not doing what we feel God wants us to do? Is it because we think that God isn't sovereign and doesn't have the best for us on his heart? And if it, did, if, it, if it is that, then I think that's a very dangerous place to be. And we need to repent and submit. And the sailors, look at them. Look at their reaction. Drama, they start praying. Okay, praying to completely the wrong place, the wrong false gods. But at least give them credit, they start praying. They start praying to a completely powerless set of gods. But when they see the real power of the real God... They come, they come good. And uh, they realized who really is in control. And for us, I suppose, it can be in times of crisis, we can turn to places which actually don't really help us. It could be a shopping trip that makes us feel good for about 10 minutes until the credit card bill arrives. It could be to alcohol, which makes us feel good, dulls the pain, but actually leaves us worse off. And then perhaps we're looking for answers somewhere else like the sailors were. They asked how they might please this God of Jonah. How might we please the God of Jonah? And I think that's a good question for us today. How might we please the one true living God? And the answer is from Jesus. Jesus gives us the answer. Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Come to me all who are thirsty and I will give you streams of living water. Come to me, Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's where this passage points to. It points to Jesus, and we need to make sure we are aligned on him. We are submissive to him, and that we trust in him for everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to acknowledge your sovereignty in our lives.
Help us to acknowledge that you, you love us beyond imagination so much that you gave your son to die for us on the cross. Help us to look to you and nowhere else for meaning and truth in our lives. Help us, Lord, to follow you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.